Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall, either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Good afternoon. Welcome to Bums on Seats, Cambridge 105 Radio's fortnightly in-depth film review show. Not like that thing we do on Thursday when we just sort of do what we want. Um, joining me today to discuss the otherworldly magic of the mean streets of Beale Street, Oscar-tipped slow burner green book, the kookily bloodthirsty velvet buzzsaw and the cosily acerbic masterpiece. Can you ever forgive me? Are Emma Marchant. Hi there. Mark Baylor. Hello. Rowan Lamb. Hello. And Dave Riley. Afternoon. Enough of them. I'm Ashley Capaldi. Um, I'll also be bringing you a break around the halfway mark today from our overlapping opinions in the shape of a special pre-recorded interview with two Cambridge academics who were responsible for programming the film section of the Arbab Festival, which is happening next week at the Junction and celebrates Middle Eastern and North African music, films and food. So let's dive into all that's wrong about the modern art world. I'm hoping you find something to explain what's happening. Which one's better? One or two? Better or worse, no different. No different. It's brilliant. Demand has people ready to kill. Have you ever heard of an artist named Ventral Dees? No, not in our records, and we have everyone. The artist used blood to create the reddish blocks. You ever notice anything about this painting? You look at it long enough, it moves. Something truly goddamn strange is going on! This is a slaughterhouse. Are you aware that Dee's asked that all his art be destroyed? Okay, so written and directed by Dan Gilroy, who also did Nightcrawler, which starred Jake Gyllenhaal. Velvet Buzzsaw stars Jake again, alongside Rene Russo, Tony Collette and Londoner Zawa Ashton as a poisonous quartet of sort of holier-than-thou art industry bigwigs who find themselves thrown into a supernatural bloodbath after discovering the... Stick with me here. After discovering the life's work of a recently deceased unknown artist is what went on, um, but it's been met with accusations of blandness. Well, Emma's not feeling that negativity today, though. No, I'm not. I'm going to say, first of all, anything that has a fair amount of gratuitous nakedness of uh, Jay Gyllenhaal is very far from bland. I don't think it was bland. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it did run out of steam. I think it had a kind of... It, it started off with this premise, like you, like you say, you know, it's a, a satire of the very worst of the art world. Um... And also, but we were, we were discussing this beforehand, and the, I think the cast is uniformly really good, actually. Rene Russo, Jake Gyllenhaal, so I asked you, you, yeah. you mentioned there's also John Malkovich is in there. Pops Tom up. Sturridge doing an awesome South African accent. As so a sort which of one was he? Was he sort of working there as a sort <laughs> of He was John Dondon. No, he was no, the, um, he was the sort of fae South African art yeah. dealer, the competitive art dealer. He, don't remember well, him. Brand, <laughs> see? He met another man fairly early on, <laughs> okay. as many of them Oh, do. I see. But, um, <laughs> no, I thought, although, so although it ran out of steam, I, for 75% of it, I 
had quite a hoot watching it and it seemed to me that they had quite a hoot doing it. Um, J. Gyllenhaal in particular as he gets more and more hysterical as it goes on I really, I just oh, enjoyed I just that performance sorry very much. for Jake. So it's it's probably not cinema worthy though, would you agree with that? Even though it's not bland, it's it's safe on Netflix. I think it, Netflix feels like the right home for it I think. It, yeah. it, it felt like a solid Netflix original release um, it didn't have an awful lot of buzz before it came out. I think I was only aware of it about a couple of days ago. I was only was aware of it before this show. Yeah, Paul Dano's... Yeah. I end up on Paul Dino, Dano's Instagram feed and that was how I came across Velvet Bustle. So oh, I, I thought, well, like that's Paul not Dano. very... Um, yeah, let's <laughs> if not Paul go- Dano likes it, then maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Loves it's it. okay. But, um... So it feels as well that it's building on this kind of movement towards a new style of horror. So things like Tony Collette's Hereditary, Tony Collette's in this... It, is it working, though? Horror fans? Who's a horror fan? Well, Rowan's I'm, a horror fan. <clears throat> I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool um, hardcore horror fan, but I did love Hereditary, that and this isn't even a... This doesn't even... Isn't fit to tread in the same <laughs> footprints as Hereditary, as far as I'm concerned. I did Fine. think it was all right. <laughs> it was all right. I don't think it. we could say it was any better than that. My yeah. girlfriend, who I watched it with um, uh, on Thursday night, was on Twitter for 90% of it. She she was not engaged at all. It took two goes for me. Yeah. I lost so much interest and then realised that so much had gone by that yeah. I had to start again today. But I did watch it all the way through <laughs> again today and it's, it is a, a riot laugh in some places, but I'm not entirely convinced that was I was supposed to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I, I It didn't feel like it knew really what it wanted to be. Um, the horror aspects of it which we've sort of talked about a little bit you know i think if they double down on that if he got a bit more atmosphere a bit more menace having been on the very very edge of the art world he's talking about i feel like there's so much more material in that world that he could have exploited so i did enjoy the very satirical bits and so the bit where john malkovich is bringing someone into his space to show them his new work. Mm. and they... That was Tom Sturridge. Yeah. Oh, that was him. <laughs> so he's looking at rubbish bags taped together on the floor and he just says, oh, it's incredible. And John Malcolm is just like, that's not it. Yeah. So is there enough satire in this, do you think, to save it? Or does that just jar completely with what we're trying to do here, which I think that is was, a horror film? That was the little bit of the film I actually liked. The trouble is, for the, for the 75% of the film that Emma liked, I think there was only 25% satire and mm. that came all at the start, then it just kind of seemed pushed aside in favour of these kind of gimmicky jump scares. It it turned into a game of whack-a-mole for me. It was like, oh, who's who's going to get... Murdered but that's by a random what piece great. Of art. That no. is what great classic sort of but, slasher films are. But then maybe this is what scary. Netflix is doing because we talked about Bird Box on my last fi- on my yeah. last thing, and we were like, it was a bit like you know. Um, and then there were none or whatever. It's like who's going to get this? Bird Box was also like that. So maybe that's what they're trying to do. I found it less horror and more well, like I found it like teen horror. I don't mm. do proper horror, mm. and I found this le- much less of a horror film and more of a kind of. Well, Netflix is very good at that. I think they completely have found their niche now. So kids who cannot rock up to a cinema and watch a 15, let alone an 18, they can find pretty much whatever they want on Netflix. This is this isn't that scary. It's it's funny. I didn't find it at all scary. It's elements of Final Destination, but maybe. 
because I watched Final Destination too young, maybe that terrified me. But there was <laughs> there was a sense of foreboding menace throughout Final Destination, whereas, like you said, it, it felt more whack-a-mole, maybe because we're just like, well, hey, but who's going yeah. next? <laughs> but they're, well, and they're all obviously meant to be abhorrent people. Every single person in this film, I, I don't Jake think. Jake had a nice, forgiving Well, Jake angle. tries to have an art, but he's still pretty Natalie Dyer off of um, Stranger Things. And, uh, She's the only innocent, is she? Yeah. And also uh, David Diggs, who plays Danridge. Oh, I didn't... Mm, Ooh, he no, wasn't very nice. No, that's the thing. He's the he artist was, from the streets. And he was a nice, pure artist, yeah, in that he's sense. Always, but the, the reason the art kind of, you know, appeals to him is because he doesn't want to monetize it. Yes, and so he, he, that that was the. Let's one discuss where what like, this is actually about, yeah. Ben. So I figured, <laughs> I figured it might be maybe about riding on the coattails of other success, but then it's probably about what money does to art, yeah. which is a kind of very lofty yeah. thing to and try again, and get across to a broad audience. And, and they didn't really attack that well enough I no. think yeah. I don't think the message came across I don't honestly think I know what the director thinks of the art world because whilst he sort of like had a little sort of satirical look at it he didn't yeah. seem to truly dislike the world he was satirising mm. I think he was enjoying it a little too much yeah. I don't know maybe I didn't get the he right was just setting a you know setting a horror a sort of comedy horror in the art world because it made for some imaginative deaths. That's true. And nice, so yes. you, more than anyone, Emma, you love a little sort of scenery porn. So there are beautiful <laughs> houses, beautiful earrings, yeah. all sorts of stuff great going on I mean, here. Great costuming. <laughs> well, yeah, and, yeah. a, lot, a lot of great scenes of people marching around in fabulous clothing. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Zoe Ashton's jewellery yeah. was just uh, Yeah, And, and what a great role for her. Hopefully this catapults her. So she was, I saw her in that silly thing on Channel 4 where they were squ- Squatters. Do you mean, oh, you don't mean fresh meat, do you? Because that was not silly, no, that was not brilliant. Fresh. Do I? Maybe fresh I do. Fresh meat was oh, awesome, no. that was all about the students, and she okay. was great in that. She is great in that, and she plays, she is completely an about face to what I'm used yeah. to seeing her in, and she's brilliant in it. Uh, and when you mentioned sort of things like costuming, yada, 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 but another thing, these are, had two great roles for slightly older actresses. So you've got Renee Russo and Tony Collette. Well, of course, Renee Russo was also in Nightcrawler with yes. Jane Gyllenhaal, so mm, I yeah. presume that the director... In, you know, has a, that's the sort of he obviously likes to work with them yeah. both, and she. It, it's great to see her. They're I mean, as I'm to fabulous think and as she was in, and, and what else has she been I'm in? Not, I recognise her from so many things. She's just a great character actress, so you're not supposed to hone in directly to her and be be um, distracted. But they they were sort of as powerful and. Mm as fabulous as all the young things and the rest of the cast, which I really liked, and I picked up on that. Not sure what John Malkovich was doing there. He was yeah. just a cool little Easter egg, I think. I think John Malkovich needed a new patio, so he took the job. Oh, maybe a conservatory. <laughs> yeah. They have conservatories in LA? That would be a hot box. That would cook you alive. Anyway. I wonder I wonder if Malkovich had a bigger part, but it maybe got cut out and reduced, because he, he pops up again during the Right end, at the end, end, end credits, credits. Designing some more. I was quite taken in by the end credits, yeah, I actually. Thought that was, and if anything, I liked that. That seemed to be the message of the thing. It, she yeah. said, go and make something for yourself, and he seemed mm. finally happy in, on the beach there. It was very, yeah, I did well, like... Yeah. His character and David Dave's character, they're both the ones who were inspired by the art and went to go and do something yeah. with it, rather than just thinking, how can I make money off this? Yeah. Yeah. It was, how, how can I express myself? It's a nice enough Netflix nice watch. Message. I'd probably put it on your list after the thing you want to stay awake for when you're having a <laughs> film night. 
and just try and get through as much as possible. Um, Emma loves it. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't feel I didn't love it, but I do think you're being very harsh when you say how dull you. I didn't. I thought it was just. A, I thought it was a pretty entertaining. It's only like an hour and fifty minutes. It or rumbles something, along. And I did think it was. It, it chugged along at a fairly speedy pace, okay. and it's filled with a lot of good performances from very likable actors. Yeah. Can't really go far wrong, can you? For free. Particularly when you have a month isn't free, but yeah. For sure. Not bad. So, not bad (laughs) is the final word on Velvet Buzzsaw, (laughs) which is Certificate 15, and you can see that on Netflix right now. Um, Shall we dive into another film? So, it's kind of riding on the promise of its creator's previous success, a bit like Velvet Buzzsaw. So, if Beale Street could talk from the Oscar winner who brought us the dreamily magical moonlight. Um, Barry Jenkins' latest film drops us off on the streets of late 1960s Harlem, has us dodging the horrors of police brutality and racial profiling, and still finds time for an idyllic love to flourish among the chaos. We are drinking to new life. Tish gonna have Fanny's baby. (laughs) I hope it's a boy. (laughs) Come on over here, daughter. You're a good girl, and I'm proud of you. Don't you ever forget it. And who's going to be responsible for this baby? The father and the mother. When I hold you in my arms, I got to hold our baby in my arms. We'll find a way. That child was born of sin. That child is your grandchild. What difference does it make how he gets here? Unbow your head, sister. These are our children, and we got to set them free. Remember, love is what brought you here. And if you trusted love this far, don't panic now. So we heard little bits of the now Oscar-nominated original music score there, so I'll go to my score man. What did you reckon of this? Do you remember much about Moonlight's music? I don't remember a lot about. I don't remember what you music. said about it either, so I can't help. But just, <laughs> did you actually, notice? I haven't the... seen Moonlight when it was reviewed, <gasps> so that was the trouble. I, I was well, it didn't stay in Cambridge long enough, and I, I came to the party <sighs> late. With I Moonlight. think that's I on. It's on Amazon or Netflix now. I, Moonlight. I saw it in the cinema after the oh, Oscars because okay. they revived all the films that had won, but we'd reviewed it two months earlier. Oh, so, so you weren't in on that party. No, but no. do you know? Did you notice the music in Beale Street? I did. You're not really supposed to, in a way, though. Yeah, they, you've told me previously. The balance of a, a film score, yeah, is like the, the there's either the kind of big bombastic film score, something like Star Wars, where it's driving it along and you want to notice it, and then there's other ones where it's a lot more subtle. And in Moonlight, I think that was the case. In this, it, it's kind of a mix of the two. There's some very nice. You've got a very nice didactic music in the background when they're walking through the streets of Harlem, and you can hear the music coming out of the shops on the radios and mm-hmm. and then every now and again you just get this lovely sur- uh, swelling of strings that we've just heard in the trailer and for those moments it seems to be whenever there's a connection between, between the, the, lead the two main characters yeah so we've got uh, Tish Rivers played by Kiki Lane and I don't think she's done much before Hunt, Kiki. I have no idea played by Stephen James yeah and whenever they're together on the screen and it's not all the time that they're together, it's but whenever they're together and they're only focused on each other, which they is They have the these point. great p- 
point of view shots. Yeah, it's really otherworldly and sort of Vaseline lens, very much like those the same moments in Moonlight that I really loved. And it's also up, so it's up for best original score at the Oscars. Also up for best adapted screenplay. It's a James Baldwin novel, so he wrote "I Am Not Your Negro," Um, and I think we were mentioning just as the trailer was on for everyone else. This isn't the kind of novel you'd expect to get the big screen treatment is it so was it mark for you was it still enjoyable and accessible despite the the really violent and difficult background it's set in it um yeah i i i would say so i mean i think it was very we talked quite a bit about moonlight already and i think it was very had a very similar feel to moonlight to me and i've sort of been yeah. going around saying to people if you liked Moonlight, you'd like this. If you yeah. didn't like Moonlight, you probably won't like like this <laughs> because it's that similar thing where you've got mm-hmm. two. In this case, obviously, it's the same actors throughout, but you, it's a very much obviously character-driven piece. You've got this, you know, this wonderful relationship between between Fonny and uh, and Tish, and that's essentially that's kind of what this film is all about. It's all about it their is, relationship, it? uh, and it's it's quite sort of was claustrophobic in, 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 in that sense, um, particularly in the way that it's filmed as well, with the, the close-ups on them and you've got, the camera kind of lingers on their, their faces a lot, really captures their expressions. Yeah. Um, and all there's so much going on around them um, and we see bits of it, but it's, you know, another, another writer, another director might have taken the film in a completely different direction and, and made it something totally different to what it actually is but it, the way that this is done the, the, as I say the camera work the focus on the characters and that relationship it really makes it something something very different and you know, pretty special I think So yeah it could very well have been a different story and Barry Jenkins said before about Moonlight we've got to stop saying that um, but also Beale Street so he wants to tell black people's stories in a different way so these characters are more than the sum of their race issues the police who are literally hunting them on the streets it's about this brilliant love story which is as huge and magical and otherworldly as any other love story we normally see between different characters on the big screen so that didn't it that wasn't a very sort of big intrusive in your face thing either i didn't really notice that that's what was happening throughout it was just the the lovely family relationships between everyone. Regina King is nominated, so she plays Tish's mum in this. She was very good, however, I did feel dips in this when we weren't with Tish and Fonny and when it wasn't these high-stress moments when they're sort of trying to get Fonny off his charge or they're confronted by the police. When, When we have scenes between other family members... It kind of lost pace for me, I thought. But were you enraptured all the way through? There is a there's a scene very early on where Tish is kind of announcing her pregnancy. Yeah. At which point, Fonny is already in jail. Yeah. Uh, because the the they film the movie over kind of two timelines. Yes. The lead up to him being put in jail, and then the after effects of how it's happening, but they run mm-hmm. them parallel. And the scene where everyone is gathered in their small front room was, you know, explosive. It was some of the best drama I've ever seen on screen. Everyone's yeah. playing off each other and everyone is absolutely brilliant and kind of ferocious as well, really getting their teeth into it. And then later on in the film, they start to kind of branch out and you get smaller scenes. And, you know, there, there's one in particular I'm thinking of. There's a great scene between Fonny and his friend where his friend has been in prison and is telling Fonny about it. And he doesn't talk about, you know, kind of the excessive abuse or anything. He's just talking about the fear 
and that for me was very powerful but at the same time you then have other scenes and there's the the scene between the two fathers uh, that's the bit i was sort of got a bit lost on yeah and they <laughs> they're talking about the struggle they've had and everything mm. to go through but they also seem to solve the problem very very quickly it felt <laughs> to me and it kind of took away any tension right and it, it was good to see the way they were thinking and the you know they said that we're going to solve this by doing what we've always done and i was like okay and then you get a, a kind of almost and this bit felt very out of place to me. There was like a montage in the middle of the film <laughs> where they're showing them getting things done to try and... They need to show that know. a makeover has happened, so we just got to get through this in 30 seconds, guys. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and it, 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 to compare to the rest of the film, for me, that felt very out of place. And it almost did kind of slow the film down, yeah. despite the fact that that was one of the faster moments in the film. total sore thumb minute for me because... And I didn't feel that with Moonlight. You felt you were magnetized at the beginning and carried all the way through and I was I was almost there I was just sort of getting annoyed for Barry Jenkins I was like oh you almost did it again it was almost perfect but I did have a few dropout moments in that did you feel that this was as sort of Oscar and accolade worthy as Moonlight or was that Jenkins's masterpiece and he's always going to be trying to catch up to it um yeah I, I think it's right up there I think I probably I would give the edge to, to Moonlight, I think, personally. But I'm, I, I can't say I really felt like, like you two did with that. I actually quite liked the fact that that came, went in there and then went, it sort of came in and came out again very quickly. But I mm. like that because so many other stories could have taken that and made such a big thing out of what they were doing and then moralising over it or whatever. And, and as I was saying earlier, this film didn't do that because it, it was almost like that's not really important the important thing is how the, the relationship they have in this case the two fathers with each other and how they deal with what's what's going on and it, in some ways it's quite shocking but because it's so much more understated that they've had to resort yeah. to this to get to do what they've got to do and it's kind of it's like a, there's, a, there's a really quiet anger i think in this film the, the social yeah. injustice and it's not shouty about it it doesn't make a big thing which is like, this is how it is and this is how and that tension is in their palpable, lives. And it, and because isn't it? Because it's shocking, thinking, and it, it kind of brings it home even more. I think to me, just how outrageous. It's just every day for them. It's yeah, that yeah, the, and the scenes with the policeman out on the street as well. He he pops up a few times, and the the way that um, Jenkins shoots that is kind of almost handy cam in places, um, and you feel the police completely infiltrating every every part of their lives. But yeah, definitely worth a watch. I think you're right, just short of moonlight brilliance, but it's still a gripping and enthralling lovely love story and a great period piece as well. So that's If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, that's a certificate 15. It's only showing at the Arts Picture House in town, though, so get yourself down there if you'd like to see that. Bless you, Emma. That was a really atmospheric moment. Um, so this is a track by Amira Kia. She's performing next week at the Arbab Festival, which is on at the Junction. It's a festival of music and film from the Middle East and North Africa, running from the 15th to the 17th of February. There are three films, two big concerts, plus food, and you can get your tickets on the Junction website. Now, Toby, who, Toby off of Bums on Seats, went to speak to Dr. Sammy Everett and Dr. Vanessa Paloma Elbaz, both from the University of Cambridge, who were responsible for programming the film section of the festival. Um, so I will play you that very special and exclusive interview now. 
My name is Vanessa Paloma Elbaz. I am a research associate at the Faculty of Music at the University of Cambridge. The Ahbab Festival is actually a music and film festival of these artistic forms from the Middle East and North Africa. And there's a series of concerts and films that will be in Cambridge on the weekend of the 14th. So my name is uh, Dr. Sami Everett. I'm an affiliated lecturer at the Faculty of Asian and Middle East Studies. And the way the connection with the Ahbab Festival came about was through a seminar that I held here in December with Vanessa, which looked at the dynamics of uh, Jewish-Muslim interaction in the Maghreb. So the first film you have showing at the festival is Omar Getleto from Algeria, 1976. It's a story of bored and angry male youth culture, and it sounds very relevant to today's concerns. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, Omar Getleto is a film about... It's a, it's a realist picture. It's a film about young males in the 70s uh, in a housing project and the life of one particular individual whose name is Omar. He's a passionate amateur of Hindi music um, and Andalusi music. So the story revolves around his everyday, very simply, and that is interspersed with a story of a kind of slightly mystical tale about a tape that he comes across um, from one of his friends that has a, a mysterious woman's voice on it, and he tries to listen to the voice and find out where she's from, and he gleans details of this person. Algerian cinema is, 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 has a heyday in the 70s, and then it kind of slips into oblivion in the 80s, really, or partly because of the beginning of the Civil War, um, or, you know, that's also for obvious reasons, but it's also to do with the fact that cinemas start getting closed. So the closing down of cinemas means that, that local people aren't going to see local films. One of the central points of, of bringing this to, to a festival uh, in Cambridge about North Africa and the Middle East is, is precisely to bring it back into the purview of, of the mainstream because it's, it's relevant, as you said, the questions of virility, masculinity, you know, are, are relevant in, to our society but also to debates around society in, in countries in, in the Maghreb and in the Levant. A beat ball. The festival's second film, screening on the first day, is Midnight Orchestra. I think it's fair to say that's the possibly the most conventional, familiar drama in terms of structure that you have screening at the over the weekend. Yes, uh, the Midnight Orchestra is a film that's actually about a young man who comes back to Morocco after having left when he was very young, after the Six Day War. And he comes back because his father, who's a violinist, has asked to meet him there. When he arrives, his father dies. And then he decides to revive his father's memory by finding all the members of his father's orchestra, 
that are still living in Casablanca. And the film is about this, this journey of finding and reviving that memory and the pain that all these different members of this very tight musical family felt after the emigration of their leader. Does it offer an insight into a Jewish community and a Jewish history that is little known outside Morocco? I think one of the interesting things about that film and about the filmmaker's desire to make that film is actually that um, this Jewish history has been entering mainstream Moroccan discourse in the last, I would say, 15 years in a really strong way. And so he wanted to do something that wasn't lacrimose because usually it's very much about, you know, the pain of the loss of the Jewish community. But he actually uses humor in a, in a very unexpected way. It's about this musician that's part of Moroccan popular culture and that is very Jewish and that his son has left and comes back and doesn't really know what it means to be Moroccan. And many Moroccans know that persona. And so to kind of live it from his eyes was able to to open something in in the national conversation about this. The final film of the festival, the film on the Sunday, is Femi Crete. Your first two films on the Saturday focus on male characters, male relationships, but you're finishing on a film that focuses on a, on a female poet. Yes, um, this film is actually very interesting because the filmmaker is Lahzen Zinun. He is actually a professional ballet dancer and also um, a filmmaker. And so he has a special relationship to the body and the movement of the body. And this film is actually all about inscribed memory on women's bodies, So, which is really what is a part of traditional Amazigh uh, Moroccan culture. So Amazigh means the free people, and it's uh, the word for Berber that actually the community itself prefers. What happens here is that she has certain tattoos that are messages and that have symbolism and have cultural symbolism. And to erase that message and to erase that memory from the culture, then it's actually taken off her with acid and, and the memory is gone. So it's a real commentary about orality, the power of orality, and, and the fear of the power of orality. And uh, you mentioned the director used to be a choreographer. He was in his 70s when he made this. This is only his second feature film, I think. Uh, his short films, he made a few short films before that, they're available on YouTube, and they're quite experimental. Does his choreography, his history as a choreographer, does that make itself known in the way he handles his actors, the way he directs? I think it does. I think that he, he has a special relationship to movement and, and one can see it coming through the way that he, that he deals with actors. 
I think the thing that um, for Zinun, one of the things that's that's interesting is that I think he finds that with cinema, he's able to say things that he wasn't able to say with dance. And, uh, and he was actually told by the former king that in Morocco, men should do the fantasia, which is the horses with the guns, and not be ballet dancers. So there's a real um, tension about the demonstration of what it is to, to be a Moroccan man. So here we go back to the topic from the very beginning of the festival, this whole issue of masculinity in the Maghreb, what is accepted and, and what is real. And they're not always the same thing. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. So that was the Ababa Film Festival. Well, it's actually a festival of film and music and food that's coming to the junction on the 15th and the 17th of February. Thanks very much to Dr. Sammy Everett and Dr. Vanessa Paloma El Baz, recorded by Toby there. Um, you should be able to get tickets on the junction website. It looks to be £17 to see all three films. 11.50 if you're a student, so get yourself down to the junction for the Arbab Film Festival. We're going to switch now to another Oscar-buzzy film that comes in the shape of Viggo Mortensen and Mahashala Ali's two-hander, Green Book. It's pretty much two-hander, isn't it? Save for a few sort of unsavoury, unprogressive types from the Deep South and an awards season snubbed performance, I think, from Linda Cardellini playing Cardellini. Cardellini, Cardellini, playing Vigo's wife. Our equally Oscar-nommed leading actors forge an unlikely bond when Ali's lofty and learned Dr Shirley requires the street smarts of Mortensen's Tony Lip to get him safely across the country on a concert hall tour. Yeah, some guy called over here, a doctor. He's looking for a driver. You interested? I am not a medical doctor. I'm a musician. I'm about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South. What other experience do you have? Public relations. Tell me that don't smell good. I've never had fried chicken in my life. You people love the fried chicken. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right? I'm good. Interacting with some of the wealthiest people in the country. It is my feeling that your addiction Oof. could use some finessing. What, why are you breaking my balls? Because you can do better, Mr. Balalonga. I saw Dr. Shirley play the piano. He's like a genius, I think. Come on, take it easy. I prefer not to get grease on my blanket. Ooh, I'm gonna get grease on my blanket. This gentleman says that I'm not permitted to dine here. I'm afraid not. How does he smile and shake their hands like that? Because it takes courage to change people's hearts. So, director Peter Farrelly there, known for Dumb and Dumber, other low-concept comedies, <laughs> such as Stuck on You. There's something about Mary, which I quite liked, actually. But has the elder Farrelly brother finally grown up, then? Um, yeah, I, if, if this is something to... to judging by then, then yeah i would would say so um 
You're yeah, not I'd... sounding wholly convinced yeah. there, Mark. <laughs> well, you know, maybe he needs to do a few more sort of films in this nature before yeah. he could perhaps make that call. But, but yeah, it's certainly this, as a, as a starting point would go, I'd say this would be be very good. I, I, I really liked it, um, first of all. Um, and, yeah, it's, you know, I know it's, it's coming for a bit of criticism uh, I, I believe what is with all the backlash um, all three of, of you backlash. came out yeah you really liked it yeah well I, it, it's because I think it was you know up until only about a month or so ago it's been like you know award 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 leading or whatever you know everyone's like yeah, all about the buzz and all about race but then I think that Dr Shirley's family I believe have come out to say it's not really a true story because they weren't really friends it was very much an employer-employee relationship so but of course the two people who were both in it both died in 2013 so it's hard to maybe necessarily see. confirm or deny maybe story. people smell a rat because i smell a rat before i saw this when you're up for that many oscar nominations off the back of a film that seemed to have sort of come out of nowhere for me there was no like pre-rumble it landed in cinemas maybe i'm not paying enough attention i don't think you're paying enough attention really? it won the golden globe for best comedy there's been so much buzz but, around yeah. both performances and mm. rightfully so i mean i just would like to say before we get too far mm. down the line of backlash or whatever mm. that both figo mortensen and mahashala ali mm. uh, what i really liked about this film is i've never seen two such different performances. Viggo Mortensen is so physical. The eating, his character mm. is always eating and when he eats, my God, he eats. And nothing I've ever seen Viggo Mortensen in or nothing I ever <laughs> think I know about his public performance could have prepared me for this performance. It's completely different. And Mahashara Ali's performance is incredibly, he's, it's reserved, it's its all in the tiniest facial expressions. He's a the buzzing two of can, isn't he? Were, I thought that just worked so well together. Yeah, was, just, I think, you know, um, Peter Farrelly deserves a lot of credit for drawing those performances. Going back to that question, yeah, has he grown up drawing those performances yeah. um, from those two? I think was you know it's a huge credit to, to him for that. Um, and Mahashala seems like an obvious choice because he does have this kind of regal air to him. I would have cast him in this, but then again, I I wonder how they ended up with Vigo because I'm just looking at everything else he's in. He's basically just the Lord of the Rings guy, history of violence guy. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now, Captain Fantastic. Yeah. Ashley. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm missing out. But he's, that was he's played such quite understated roles before, and I think as a um, as a, as a person, I know many years ago I went was lucky enough to go to a, a press conference for Hidalgo um, films for the local paper I was working for at the time, and again he came across as you know, really quietly spoken, very very sort of um, yeah very quiet, reserved character, you know, person, individual. So to see him producing a you know a performance like that yeah. uh, I know you can that kind all, of get all actors were able up. to that persona changed and everything but it just was such a huge contrast not only to, to how he seems but also his other roles you know yeah. it was Very incredible um, larger feat. than life wasn't yeah. it yeah <laughs> which is yeah. something I've never seen him do either yeah no, really, you can really get very like carried away if you're tied to a big franchise like something like Lord of the Rings so this is good that he is getting picked up for other stuff like Captain Fantastic and this and he's able to show perhaps more of his acting chops and he's able to we were questioning as well and maybe this is a bit of a backlash where it might have come from but I think maybe it's down to the director's outburst when he was questioned on this so Dave do you think that it's too cosy and safe it's just a bit of a road trip movie and the director's trying to tell us that he tackled the very serious subject matter of race in the deep south in the 60s head on 
yeah, he could have possibly overstated a little bit there. I, I thought as a movie, I found it absolutely charming and lovely and enjoyable because it was just a study of a friendship between two people. Obviously, you know from the setting that they're going to, to some extent, there's, there's going to be a conflict at some point when they're on the road trip and when they do get down to the Deep South. And it's waiting for it to happen. And when it happens... Wow, what can I say? It happened exactly the way I expected it was going to happen, and it resolved itself exactly the same way I thought it was going to happen. I know it was it, so it wasn't a surprise to me, and he dealt with it okay, but it's nothing entirely groundbreaking, I would say. That's true, but I I totally agree with your word charming. I came out and I just thought it was charming, but what I did like about it was actually there are certain aspects of it that I th- think they could have gone into more cheesy drama, if you like, and I think they do a really good job, actually, of being quite restrained. Um, I'm thinking probably particularly of, of, of the scene where, you know, you, you discover that Ali is homosexual, so as well as mm-hmm. being a, um, you know, alcoholic. a black man who feels uncomfortable, you know, all of, amongst the, the Deep South, you know, when he has to... So the idea of the Green Book, which I didn't know this, the Green Book was the Deep South guide for hotels that will accept ah, blacks. Okay. So, so they have to go and stay in different hotels. I, ju- I thought it was... I just thought that in particular was really sensitively done, and I thought they could have been a little bit more... About it, it. And, and I didn't think they did. Okay. Same, and I agree with you. I think Linda Cardellini, in an underused role, was just I love magical because I love her, and I think she's a really, really good actress anyway. Yeah, and I really believed in her and Viggo Mortensen's relationship she really as well. Fleshed out Viggo's character. Yeah. He, he, it was a great performance anyway. But you, I, I felt like you learn a lot about him based on who she is, and you don't even really see them together ever hardly do you but we, we're running out of time and the final film that we're going to discuss is the best one of the day true true story true story green book i think it's a certificate 15 i couldn't really find it on imdb it's one of those ones that says r-rated or pg-13 it, might, really only sure be a tw- it might be a 12a it would only be either a 12a or a 15 There's i can't even remember much. any cursing in it Oh cursing. no, Mark, Mark, did you like that? Mark has Charlotte's character, yeah. not from him. No, it no, wouldn't have been. From, uh, yeah, um, well, yeah, there, there have a d- the use of language that is yes. not appropriate in this day and age. Yeah, uh, uh, right. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. eating with his fingers, he doesn't like that either, does he, Doctor <laughs> Shirley? Teaching him some manners. But yeah, so check the certificate on Green Book. But it's at the Arts Picture House, View and Light in Town, and all the surrounding cinema worlds. It day. is a twelve A. It's a twelve A. I guess correctly. Thanks for that insider knowledge so yeah we'll move on to our final film of the afternoon now can you ever forgive me so an adorably riotous masterpiece of a film bias much you can tell where i'm leaning on this melissa mccarthy and richard e grant are at the center of the emerging genius of marielle heller's adaptation of the story of writer lee israel's stint as a master forger so McCarthy is drawn from her reclusive existence as she and Grant perfect their dodgy dealings, but it's this burgeoning friendship and pretty much every other relationship Israel has painstakingly dipped her toe into which face ruin when the authorities eventually catch up with them. Quite by accident, I find myself in a rather criminal position. What criminal activity could possibly involve it, except a crime of fashion, of course? I'm embellishing literary letters by prominent writers. I love his writing. Particularly clever, don't you think? Caustic wit. (gasps) This is quite something. These are wonderful. I thought so, too. Name your price. You were looking at one month's rent. What are we going to do? Gamble? Shop? Drink? (laughs) 
Israel. I have a couple of questions regarding the last letter I purchased. Uh-oh. What seems to be the problem? I can't say that I regret any of my actions. In many ways, this has been the best time of my life. So what we heard of most there were the, the both Oscar-nominated performances. Richard E. Grant's first ever Oscar nomination. I'm not sure how he got away with it that long. And Melissa McCarthy. So he's up for Best Supporting. Melissa McCarthy up for Best Actress. And the screenplay is also nominated. So do we think that the popularity of this film is hinging on Richard E. Grant's sort of return to form and everyone just loving what they see from him? Um, possibly. I honestly think that I mean, his performance is magnificent, but Melissa McCarthy is carrying this film. Just, it is incredible how well she she plays this mm-hmm. this role. Um, but the two of them just fizz with this amazing chemistry, and they say it to each other. Actually, the characters say it to each other in the film a couple of times that you're never really sure whether they even like each other. Um, but they they sort of fall into this mm-hmm. alliance and this this relationship, but. The two of them just have such amazing screen chemistry that that um, you couldn't fail to get good performances out of them, yeah. I think. I think maybe because we're rightfully focusing on how brilliant that relationship between the two of them is, and people aren't talking about the rest of the cast. Mm. So Melissa McCarthy's real-life husband, Belle Falcone, is in this, and Dolly Wells... Um, English actress, she's My fantastic. Fave. I haven't seen Jane Curtin in anything for years and years, and she was... I loved, well, I hated her in this, yeah, but I loved her yeah. character in this. But so what What are people maybe missing out on if they're not sure that uh, the relationship between Melissa and McCarthy and Richard E. Grant's going to pull them into this film? What else are we missing then that we can we can sell it on? Um, or who else? Yeah, I think it's, it is a tricky one because it's, it such a, it's such a central part of the film. And I... I not to sort of keep going on about it, but yeah, it really the film really crackles when when the two of them on screen together. Um, I mean, yeah, it's 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 a it's an interesting story, obviously based on on the true story, of yeah. course. Um, so I think that that's that in itself is quite interesting, seeing how um, she she gets validation almost from forging these letters and yeah. and. Because you know, it was clearly to, to do what she she does for so long. You know, takes takes some talent, and I think she, there's it's interesting seeing how much she gets from that. She sort of draws from from that the recognition that that, that kind of comes in in terms of how their letters are accepted. Because obviously she can't seem to sell her, sell own her work. books anymore. It but, reminded um, me a lot of but Catch Me. A different name, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, people are lapping it up. It's very Catch Me If You Can in that, but I liked her a lot more than Frank yeah. Abagnale. So he was he was a he was a, an adorable character, but you you got the feeling he was a bit of a nasty criminal there. Yeah. Um, but Melissa just McCarthy. Well, let's stop calling her Melissa. Lee Israel, Lee Israel. the character <laughs> Lee Israel. Um, we seem to have a completely different connection with her, don't we? Yeah. And every mm. she's not really got a bad bone in her body, even when she ends well, up getting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the interesting thing about it is that she she it's a really sympathetic portrayal, I think. But but the, we we see plenty of her. I mean, she's really not that nice. Even a person, though she's. Really. She says herself she as says well. She says yeah. horrible things to, to people, to her, her agent and to yeah. um, d- Jack as well. And, time. and yet you somehow still can't help feel that I think rooting for her. It's her performance, isn't it? You can yeah. see it behind her eyes. Like everything comes from a place of pain and you cannot be mad about 
you can't be mad at this person for mm. that. Um, but back to the director. So no female film directors nominated for any Oscars this year. Um, this is currently sitting at 87 on its Metacritic score. So the director is um, the same. But Marielle Heller, she made Diary of a Teenage Girl. That was great with Belle Powley and Kristen Wiig. And she's making Tom Hanks's new movie about America's next door neighbour, Mr. Rogers. But it's... I think it's a good thing in that I didn't really, I wasn't really distracted by any overbearing style from the director. So, like, I could very much pick it out from the Moonlight guy does the thing he did in Moonlight. That's that's his yeah. style. But she seems very authentic and relaxed, and these people are very real. Yeah. She just leaves mm. them to There's it. There's nothing she? showy about anything in this film. And actually, I I saw it last night, and um, and uh, saw it with my girlfriend in the cinema, and at the end of the end of the film, the credits started to roll and we looked at each other and we said, that was incredible. But nothing had sort of punched us in the face as being mm. sort of overtly incredible in it. It, didn't, it wasn't shot in any kind of flashy way. There was no sort of, you know, like Dave was talking about earlier, no bombastic music that was telling us when we were supposed to be excited. Mm. But we just, mm. everything just came together in this wonderful, perfect whole that, you know, you you can't really sort of pick out any one individual thing and say, oh, it's good because, I mean, obviously we've already spoken about yeah. the performances, but, yeah, the, just everything about it was and like you said, quality nothing, film way. Yeah, mm. and nothing punched you in the face, no. really. So I felt you feel these, you realise that you're witnessing some really heavy subject matter when you're a minute into the conversation. So mm. the final scene at, at the end of the film when Richard E. Grant comes back, you're like, oh, we're dealing with this now. Okay, yeah. right. And it's just... I've never seen that huge issue around gay history dealt with yeah. so authentically and subtly. Oh, that's the other thing as well. So again, we rarely see gay characters yeah. just woven into the script like the, just, like the yeah. real people they yes, are without exactly. making a huge <laughs> deal out of their sexuality. So how yeah. long was it before you realised Lee Israel was gay? Oh, uh, Lee, yeah. I mean, halfway through the movie, perhaps. Because it's, it's you know, as in real life, irrelevant yes. to <laughs> almost she everything that anyone ever writer, does. She is a famous writer struggling and on the poverty and, um, line, these are pretty much bigger deals yeah, than, than her sexuality. It was, just, it was very, mm. very nicely handled and and the scenes where that was more overt, you know, there were a couple of scenes where, you know, it was, it was sort of more important to the storyline that you know that, were handled with such sensitivity and, and real, again, acting sort of chops. I Melissa loved... McCarthy just, mm. you know... Who played Lee Israel's ex-girlfriend? That was a two-minute thing on a park bench, and yeah. I loved that yeah, actress. That was, that, and that was such an honest, wonderful conversation about a broken-down relationship. That it, and, it was free of any kind of drama in you know with a capital D. Yeah, it was it was just two people being honest with each other about why their relationship didn't work. And yeah, magnificent writing. Mm, yeah, it all felt very real. And in fact, there was a couple of few relationships there, weren't there, that weren't really reconciled in in perhaps the way that everyone would kind of like to think they would be reconciled. And that kind of yeah, seemed to give it a bit more authenticity as well and especially in the way that it's handled as yeah. you say very quite understated sort yeah. of way um, and I think you sort of get to play this detective game where you're sort of connecting the dots and going back into Lee Ezrell's history and you're like oh right oh right and piecing together why she 
is the way she is. And there's an, another, so we're going backwards in that sense. And as we're going forwards with her, she has two character arcs. You, you get to know about her entire history, I think, very clearly. And then there's these lovely, subtle things that are done as you realise she's becoming happier. She's yeah. becoming a more whole person. She's letting people in. Like, she starts to brush her hair. Her yes. clothes are ever so slightly less wrinkled. That was, that again, super, super subtlety in the way that her physical appearance... Mm. Changed just a little bit, like yeah. you say. She brushed her hair. Maybe she'd had a shower that day. Yeah. Just. And even when you really... do sort of something that in something like Velvet Buzzsaw would have, <laughs> would have been a big makeover scene. Yeah. So Richard E. Grant comes in and helps her clean her oh, apartment. That out. scene was hilarious. <laughs> and yeah, so it's yeah. you. You could have hammed that up and made it into a really sort of Cinderella yeah. story, but they just made it funny, yeah. and you can get away with pretty much anything with Richard E. Grant's yeah. character. It's a bit like I think Rami Malek said when he was playing Freddie Mercury. That's why he kept the teeth in all day and night for months because you can get away with saying anything when your yes. character is Freddie Mercury and I think Richard E. Grant probably felt the same way <laughs> I think so it, it, this seems like the role that Richard E. Grant was born to play it, it's, it's very uh, close to himself I oh, think oh uh, yeah absolutely <laughs> I think the only difference uh, is probably the alcohol thing Richard E. Grant is actually oh, allergic, he's allergic to, to alcohol, alcohol so he, he doesn't drink whereas this character is um, an alcoholic yeah. which he plays with some you know convincing power so yeah. he must Emma has a is question. It like, I haven't seen it. I'm very much looking forward to it. You guys are doing a great job. Is it like with Nell all grown up? Mm, it's, it's so subtler. much more. Yeah, it's so much he better has, than that. He yeah. has whiffs of the with Nell, but I think that's just his face. This <laughs> yeah. is with Nell's face. Oh, no, hang on, is he I? I get mixed up. There's certain to that. <laughs> <laughs> He's with Nell. Right, He's okay. with Nell, yeah. Anyway. It's old. It's an old film. Yeah. Moving on. Um, but, yeah, the, and... It's also about, it's really, really positive in that you can turn your whole life around. It might even be in tiny little things like accepting an invitation to go to dinner with someone new yeah. or trying out something that you never would, which is when um, Jack Hawk takes Lee to... Um, uh, drag bar. Yeah. That's my favourite scene and just their shot. So he's at the bar and Lee Israel's right in the front of the shot and they just have matching head movements along <laughs> to the music and you can see that you two are meant for each other. Yeah. But yeah, I want to go and see it again just so I can hang out with the two of them. I Absolutely. think it's only an hour. And, yeah, it's 106 minutes. Yeah. yeah. I've said it 80 brilliant. times. If you cannot do your job inside of about 120 minutes, you shouldn't be a director. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, but yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, thank you very much to all my lovely reviewers. I want to make sure I say goodbye to you properly because I have a nice piece of music to play as we go out. Um, but we have been joined by Dave Riley today. Thank you very much, Mark Baylor. I always want to call you Baylor. <laughs> Emma Marchant and Rowan Lamb. So we need to be going. Thanks very much to all our listeners today, whether you're watching live. Or on the Sunday afternoon catch-up show or via our podcast. We don't really mind how you get here, just as long as you make it. That's absolutely fine. And the song you can hear coming on in the background now. Emma, do you recognise it? Sing as you loved Green Book so much. <laughs> Bit louder for you. It's a really yeah, slow burner. Is, is, is it the Don Shirley trio? <laughs> it's my funny Valentine. He plays Jeff it. Baker version. Mm, let's wait and see if if <laughs> if Frank Sinatra pops up in about. Oh no, this is a piano version. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. There's no Frank on this. It's it's full on Don Shirley. 
full on Don Shelley, from Green Book, which I reviewed as meh, but <laughs> everyone else quite liked. But thanks for tuning in. Go see Can You Ever Forgive Me? Believe the hype. We will see you in two weeks' time. Goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. bye. They're waving. They're waving.